You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Two friends, two conversations, two viewpoints, very different, the same goal. The government should get their hands off of my taxes. The government should get their hands off of my body. No external authority can look to mandate my business, the stock market, or the environment. Get your hands off my stuff in the world. I will do with it what I want. No external authority can look to mandate anything I do with my home, sex life, or gender. Get your hands off my body and my internal world. I will do with it what I want. Now, that might be an oversimplification of some of the issues of our current political climate, but I don't think it's that much of an overreach. And I am less concerned about the implications of each of those viewpoints, and I am more concerned about what each one is ultimately after. What is the perceived goal of their stances? It is freedom. It's freedom. It's to do what I want with what I have to whatever end I see fit. No one will tell me otherwise. That is our definition of freedom. And that is actually the scripture's definition of slavery. Slavery is to live out of my strongest impulses. But freedom, at least described in the New Testament, is the ability to restrain more than it is the ability to indulge. So over the next few months, we are going to do a deep dive into what are historically known as the Ten Words. We now know them as the Ten Commandments. Here's what is true. God is jealous for our freedom. This is in Deuteronomy 4.1. It says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live. In order that you might be free. See, our temptation is to view things like the Ten Commandments as some type of dictatorship of control when it is actually meant to set us free. So God knew what he was doing when he created humanity, and he knows what he's doing in leading humanity. If each one of us in this room are made in his image, which means we are to reflect him, to image him, and living life against his image does not just have moral implications, it just goes against the law of reality. So, Take, for example, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Twisting facts and telling lies goes against the grain of reality. It complicates life and drains it of its vitality. If you've ever been caught in a lie, you know this. So when Jesus says the truth will set you free, he's not saying something inherently moral. He's just telling you reality. It's not the truth should set you free. It's the truth will set you free. 
To lie is to be enslaved. To live and speak in truth is to be set free. What about six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work. Well, God is not imposing some arbitrary rule about the seventh day. He's communicating a mystery. He is telling us that stamped under the fabric of every human being is six plus one. He is saying, this is who you are. You are most human when you work within the sabbatical rhythm. Six plus one. The same is true of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. He is not telling us this to squash our joy. He's saying that we were meant for fidelity and hopping in and out of bed with folks violates who we are. Because as people who image him, we are made for covenant and commitment. E. Stanley Jones says this, the law is not an imposition on the human species, but an exposition of how the human species was created to live. It's the opposite of a burden to follow the way of Jesus. It's freedom because it is who we were created to be. And when we hear the idea of laws, it inherently feels constraining to us. Like God is somehow imposing limits on our life that restrict us from flourishing. But it's actually the opposite. God is freeing us. A community, think about this, a community that is dominated with the characteristics of hatred towards parents, workaholism, materialism, greed, theft, envy, and violence is not a free community. It is an enslaved community. And in the world God created, in the world we inhabit, not everything, by the way, is free to be anything. An apple is free to become an apple tree, not a tiger. Right? Right? Thank you. I'm worried. Um, things are free when they become what they were created to be, what they are intended to be. And maybe you're thinking the Ten Commandments, we are in the Old Testament, right? Surely those are not as relevant as they once were. Well, here's the deal. Israel is seen as the son of Yahweh. So in Exodus 4.23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So when Pharaoh refuses... Yahweh kills the negotiations and takes up the role as a kinsman redeemer and rescues his son Israel. See, Pharaoh seizes Yahweh's firstborn son in Israel. And at Passover, Yahweh seizes Pharaoh's firstborn son. God is after his son. And the ten words or the ten commandments reveal both God's desire for Israel and God's character. They are designed to form Israel into the image of his father, Yahweh. Now, we know Israel fails. But God does not fail because the father does have a son. The eternal son who becomes what Israel was supposed to be and do. And the ten words, the ten commandments are actually a portrait of Jesus. They lay out the path of imitating God because they are his character, which means they lay out the path of imitating Jesus. Peter Leithart says, are the Ten Commandments for us? We might as well ask, is Jesus for us? 
In Jesus' thesis statement of his life, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is the epitome of the ten words. And I really believe that our church is on the precipice of something. And I think these next several months are going to shape and mold the character of this people for years to come. Especially, especially as it relates to living in freedom. So I just want to ask you to lean in with me. Now here is some of the context of the Ten Commandments. The previous five weeks, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. They received bread from heaven. They saw water come from a rock. They grumbled and complained to God even after being saved and provided for. And so Yahweh starts off by instructing the Israelites this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the first line in the law is not actually a commandment at all. It is a statement. The most important thing you will hear me say over the next several months is the first word out of God's mouth to God's people is actually not the law at all. It is the word of grace. God's exhortations are spoken after his redemptive act of saving Israel. The law is given in the context of grace, not as a prerequisite to it. It's not, obey these things and I will love you. It's, I love you and I want you to live in freedom. Keeping what God says is not grounds for continuing a relationship with him. The relationship with God has already been established. And this is where much of Israel goes wrong. It separates the law from the very First lie. The law comes after grace. It is a gift of grace and it is given to protect and enhance a life of grace. Grace is the first word and it is only when you hear the first word that the others fall into being. This is like a parent at their child's birth. So many labor pains, nine months of nausea, frustration, anticipation, Excitement, tears, emotions, and the first words out of the mouth of a newborn parent to whom a child has done nothing except to cause their body to react in some really excruciating ways. We already love you so much. Grace is actually hardwired into us. And then comes the first word of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. Now to understand this, you need to understand the story of deliverance. Deliverance was not just about Israel leaving behind the land of Egypt. It was about Israel leaving behind the ways of Egypt. So the story of deliverance in Egypt involves the ten plagues. And honestly, if you don't dig into the text and some of the cultural background, they appear very random. But each of the ten plagues was more than God just flexing his muscle. Each was a symbolic defeat of an Egyptian god. So Osiris, whose bloodstream was, to, was believed to be by the Egyptians the Nile River, bleeds out before his worshipers when Yahweh turns the Nile to blood. 
in reverence to Heket, the frog goddess of birth, Egyptians regarded frogs as sacred and not to be killed, and God slays them by the thousands. The ninth plague of darkness, God demonstrates his rule over the sun god, Ra, whom Pharaoh was actually believed to embody. And in the final play, the death of the firstborn, God shows himself supreme over the entire Egyptian pantheon by demonstrating his power over life and death. And Jen Wilkin summarizes it this way. Before you can obey me as the God of the ten words of life, you must revere me as the God of the ten plagues of death. The response required is obvious too. If the God who toppled all rivals in Egypt has brought you out of Egypt by his mighty outstretched arm, the only logical response is to obey the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Undivided allegiance. The people of God lived in a land full of gods for nearly 400 years. They were dominated by the ideologies, the rituals, and the liturgies of the cultural landscape they were in. How could they not be? And so the first word out of Yahweh's mouth is you will not worship other gods. And you can actually trace this back to the origin story of the scriptures. Creation itself is a derivative of the creator. The sun, moon, stars, sky, plants, animals, humans, none of which are to be worshipped, all dependent on the creator who spoke them effortlessly into being. But God's people forget this actually rather quickly. In Genesis 35, we read the story of Jacob and his family who picked up a few idols in their bags as they headed back to Bethel. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have and purify yourselves and change your clothes Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. And here we see the signs, the early signs of a both and mentality. What is happening, by the way, is not a replacement of Yahweh, but in addition to him. It's not that they are attempting to rid themselves of the creator God. It's just that there are other things that seem appealing to them. James 1.8 calls this person a double-minded person, an unstable person, a person who is keeping all their options open. They're just not all in. Now, we live in the modernity in the West. Worship looks different, but the core issue hasn't changed. It is the temptation to half-heartedness. We love God, we love God, and we love other things. Not new, by the way, a very, very old problem, but it's Jesus again who points out the reality. It's not that it's unwise. It's not that it's merely immoral to serve two masters. It's that it's impossible. You cannot serve both God and boy. So what do you do then? Well, continuing on the story of Jacob, it says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Here's what is fascinating. Jacob could have done a lot of things to these idols. He could have burned them. He could have chopped them up. He could have just thrown them out. But he buries them. 
and he buries them under the landmark tree that was known for its idol worship. So in a potent and poetic turn of events, he holds a funeral for the idols in the very place they were typically worshipped. To rid ourselves of idols, we have to bury them. The first word God gives, you shall have no other gods, is the prerequisite for the nine other words he will give. Get this word right, the others will follow. Miss this, and the others won't matter. Choose this day whom you will serve. God is looking for undivided allegiance. He is looking for an all-out surrendered people. And at the beginning of the year, I took a walk. I was thinking about this upcoming year, and I was considering all that might come, both in our family and this church with different friendships I've got and relationships. And I was also reflecting back on the previous year. And I shared last time about the sugar fast that I had done back starting last summer. And honestly, I am eight months from that decision. And I am still, in many ways, carrying the effects of that decision in my body today. Inarguably, inarguably. The darkest six months of my life, and also, inarguably, the most powerful. And what I realized is I allowed the Spirit's space to work out His salvation in my life, and I have found myself captivated and wanting more. So I asked the Lord on this walk, what else? Where do you not have my allegiance, my attention, my heart? Where am I not holding space for you? And as clear and as frustrating a response as I've heard in a long, long time. Your small device that you are holding in your hand right now. Social media, sports, instant dopamine hit off notifications, email, you name it. I live on my phone. There is a sense of validation There's a sense of being in the know. There's a sense of belonging. Like an imaginary community that I can escape to when I feel fearful, frustrated, irritated, anxious, upset, lonely, bored, especially bored. So I have made it a dumb phone. I have made it a very dumb phone. It is Very inconvenient for my wife. And here's the problem with this phone and the problem with every other piece of tech and every other idol that takes residence in your heart. It's a very big and a very subtle problem. It almost works. It almost works. The news cycle almost scratches the itch of dignity. Pornography almost fills the longing for intimacy. Alcohol almost stuffs the feeling of anxiety. Gaming almost quells the ache for accomplishment. Social media almost eliminates the pain of loneliness. And working out almost eliminates the feeling of security. But it does not. Why? Because we were made for God. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's TikTok. Maybe it's 24-7 news cycle. Maybe it's food. Or maybe it's just a simple temptation to binge watch anything at the click of a button. I don't assume to know what it is for you. But I can guarantee you that whatever it is, 
It has more of your attention than you care to admit. Tim Wu is a Taiwanese-American legal scholar, and he says this, It is no coincidence that ours is a time afflicted by a widespread sense of attentional crisis, at least in the West, one captured by the phrase homo distractus, a species of ever shorter attention span known for compulsively checking his or her devices. Now, maybe, maybe you have an excellent relationship with technology. I hope you do. The studies would indicate that 90% of you are lying, and you don't. In fact, 90% of you, studies would say, are actually psychologically, the term is, addicted to technology. But maybe you are the few, the select few, that are just have a super healthy relationship. I pray you do. You can teach me your ways. Um, but regardless, something most likely has your attention that Jesus is jealous for. Something has your attention that takes up a significant amount of physical, emotional, and spiritual space in your life. And Lent, by the way, is on the church calendar reminding you to relinquish that. The Spirit is not inviting you to add more to your life, but rather to remove something from your life so that there could be room for the Spirit to work with. Allowing room for God to do something and growing your heart more for God. That is Lent. And that's what we need, Lent, when we were reminded in our bodies that God is not done with us yet. And where we are reminded in the day-to-day operations that we were actually made for God. The pursuit of God and God's pursuit of us is our greatest desire. And I have shared this before, but one of the big awakening moments I had as a sophomore in college was this quote by John Piper says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The thing that scares me most about this church is the thing that scares me most about myself. It's that I settle into a life and a lifestyle that is content with the slow drip of triviality when God is offered. Someone set afire by the white hot worship of God is both full of conviction and suffering love, full of patience and also zeal, self-controlled and also substantive. They are full of God. C.S. Lewis said this in his final um, sermon. This is my endlessly recurrent temptation to go down to that sea and there neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash, careful not to get out of my depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects me with my temporal things. The sea of God is offered 
Why do we settle for less? In my humble opinion, the American West is largely unmoved by Christianity, but because it just does not look all that different. It is half-hearted devotion. Revelation calls it lukewarm. Jesus calls it whitewashed tombs. And one of the more bizarre moments in the scripture is Jesus in the temple in John 7. So the Jews are nearing the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And here's a brief background sketch of what that was. It was one of the three feasts that was established after Exodus. The people of God wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after their Exodus. They were in temporary tents until they got to the promised land. And as a result of this, God wanted them to remember the years of homelessness they lived in, where we would call tents. There were years they were tested, they were tried, but also years when they were carefully looked after when God provided for them. So what the people were supposed to do was to gather some branches from trees in the countryside and build little temporary tents, temporary shelters for that entire week. And so for a whole week, they were supposed to live in these tents to remember their history, to remember when God saved them from slavery, to remember that God looked after them, and also to remember that in some ways they were still pilgrims. They were still journeying. And the feast was typically a seven-day feast. And on the seventh day, a golden jar filled with water at the pool of Siloam was carried by the high priest to the temple. And as the priestly procession approached the water gate, there were three loud blasts of a trumpet, a a shofar, which is an instrument of joy. For us, think of it like a banjo. Have you ever heard a banjo played at a funeral? No. Why? Because everybody laughs at a banjo. It's funny. It's a great instrument. It's a joyful instrument. And so that's what's happening. So there were loud blasts from this joyful trumpet. And the priest then went to the altar with the jar, and the people watched, and they would sing the Hallel hymns, which which are Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And while singing, the males would take what is called the lulav, a mixture of willow and myrtle twigs that was tied with a piece of palm that would be in their right hand, and they would take a piece of citrus fruit in their left hand that would signal the harvest. So it was this embodied worship service of both God remembering his blessing in the past, but also remembering God's goodness even now as he brings in the harvest year by year. And everyone sang out, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Three times. Then the water was offered to God. It was poured out before the altar at the time of the sacrifice. Now, in Jewish thought, this pouring out of the water at the feast was symbolic of God pouring out His Holy Spirit on the last days. So God saved them in the past, God continued to save them now, and God would pour out His Spirit in the future on the people of God that would flow over the whole earth. And what is interesting is every seventh year, on the seventh day, the festival would extend to the eighth day. And on the eighth day, they would hold a conference on the Old Testament. Most folk at the time were illiterate, and even if they could read, they didn't own their own copies of what we call the Torah. That was way too expensive. There were no printing presses. So they made a point each year of teaching the Bible, or each, every seventh year, of teaching the whole Bible at these gatherings. 
But especially every seven years, there would take time before the people to read huge chunks of the law of God. So, imagine it. They've all been feasting for a week. They've they've built these booths for a week to live in. Now they're all coming down. They're still gathered. They remembered yesterday the water jar ceremony. But now the feast is over. They're just receiving the instruction of the law. So the word of God is being read. And then Jesus stands up and says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The offer on the table, rivers of living water just gushing out of people. Wisdom, life, love, kindness, faithfulness, wonder, joy coming out of people. This is the offer on the table. God reveals himself to the people in the flesh. And do you know what happens next? When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state the Messiah will be born in the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. So Jesus announces that he is the living water, the son of God, here to quench the deepest thirst of the human heart. And what ensued was a debate. People spent time arguing And something seriously tragic happened. No one drank. People left full of opinions and empty of God. Here is what I'm convinced of. I I used to have so many opinions about so many things. And as a college student, as a young adult, I was unbelievably arrogant. But a few years back, I realized something. The world is not void of opinions. Everyone has a hundred of them. The world is void of wonder. Our church, by the way, doesn't have opinions. I mean, you as an individual might have an opinion, but we as a people don't have opinions. We just follow the way of Jesus. We believe his way is the way to life and freedom and vitality. And our community does not need more opinions. What I want our church to have more of is power, wonder, awe, joy. That's what the earth needs because that is what the kingdom is full of. Nobody in the kingdom has opinions. But they have a lot of power. And they are full of a lot of wonder. And they are filled with tons of awe. And they are exuding with countless joy. But we will not see the work of God in our day if we will not renounce all the other idols that almost work. God is at work in our world. He's been at work, by the way. He continues to be at work. He will continue to work forever. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? The following actually is an excerpt uh, as part of um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's book of poems. And I'm just going to read this. I read it about five times this week, and it is just 
wild. And truly, I say again, nothing is trivial. Not the muffled hum of a summer bee that finds a likeness with the spinning stars. The pebble at your foot, the shape of the world, the finch which sings with angels. And glancing on my own thin veined wrist and such a slight pulse, the whole passion of a soul doth utter itself distinct. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries, smearing their faces, unaware more and more reflections of their creator. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Do we see it? I want us to see it. I want us to call it out. And one of the great tragedies of our day is that we are missing the voice of God because every other competing voice is drowning him out. And God is not coercive and he's not manipulative. He is invitational. And he gives us the offer, the choice, right? Come empty and I will fill you. Come hungry and I will meet you. Come thirsty and you leave full. Come broken and I will heal you. Come boldly and I will meet you. Come limping and I will tend to you. Come to the throne of grace, not, by the way, the throne of power, not, by the way, the throne of authority. It's the throne of grace. You come with every single idol in your bag to Jesus, and he will meet you, not with a stern talking to, not with an iron fist, not with an exasperated, you finally showed up. The look on Jesus' face. Whatever you picture in your mind of the look on Jesus' face when you show up to the throne room is what you believe about God and what you think God thinks about you. It is a throne of grace. And in coming to the throne, all the other thrones Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.